Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Jesus Christ may be one way to God, but there are many other ways as well. And Jesus may be true for you, but is he true for everyone as well? Aren't there many different ways to God and many different paths to truth? Have you ever heard questions or statements like this? They're so popular in the world in which we live today. Where did they come from? Where did we get the sense that there was no such thing as absolute truth? There was no such thing as a definitive understanding of God. Well, those are the questions that make up much of what we call today our pluralistic modern, postmodern worldview. But they do have a history, a genealogy, as it were. And today we're going to listen to a lecture. It's a fascinating talk given by the late Bishop Leslie Newbingen. Maybe you've heard that name. Leslie Newbingen is one of the most formative Christian thinkers, I would say, of the last 100 years. Uh, He was born in Scotland. He grew up and became a minister in the Church of Scotland but felt called to be a missionary, and he and his wife traveled in 1936 to India, where he served for many, many years. After World War II, there was created in India a fledgling church of South India. It was really an ecumenical church formed from several Protestant traditions and church bodies. Leslie Newbingen was chosen to be the bishop of that newly formed church of South India. This put him in touch with Christian leaders all around the world. He became one of the key figures at the founding meeting of the World Council of Churches in 1948. But he always had this great, deep sense of commitment to the world Christian mission. Later in his life, in 1959, he became the general secretary of the International Missionary Council, which eventually was integrated within the World Council of Churches. So he was an ecumenical statesman. He was a churchman of the first rank. He was also a very good New Testament scholar and theologian. One of his best early books on the New Testament was called The Household of God. still worth reading today. Well, following a number of years of mission in India and around the world, he came back to England and spent the last years of his life living there, becoming engaged in a kind of project known as The Gospel and Our Culture, He said, I traveled to India to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, some of whom had never heard that message. But when I came back to my own home country, I discovered that I was entering, as it were for the first time, a brand new mission field where there was great ignorance of the gospel and great ignorance of Christian truth. This led Leslie Newbingen to begin to think deeply and seriously about the Christian faith, about the issues of pluralism and relativism and syncretism. And he published a number of books, one entitled Foolishness to the Greeks, and another, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Shortly before his death, he died in 1998, we invited him to Beeson Divinity School. And we had a whole conference built around Leslie Newbingen and his perspective on the world and culture and the gospel and Christian truth. And the lecture we're going to listen to today came from that conference. It was given in June of 1997 here in Hodges Chapel at Beeson Divinity School. And we call that whole conference, Truth to Tell, the Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Listen now to one of the great voices in the Christian faith over the past hundred years, the late Bishop Leslie Newbingen, 
as he speaks on truth to tell, the gospel in a pluralist society. Dear friends, thank you from the bottom of my heart for this wonderfully warm and loving welcome and for that rich tradition of faith which finds expression in the fact that we could all join spontaneously in singing that great hymn. I'm deeply grateful to be here, to be among you, and to have the chance of sharing with you some of our concerns about the gospel. I've taken as my title, The Gospel as Public Truth. The Gospel as Public Truth. And that may seem in a way rather an absurd title because it implies that there is such a thing as a private truth, which of course, properly speaking, there cannot be. But nevertheless, the phrase points our attention to a reality. May I express it in this way? If two scientists using the same materials, the same instruments, and the same methods under the same circumstances conduct the same experiment and produce contradictory results. They do not embrace each other and say, what a joy it is to live in a pluralist society. (laughs) They, They go on arguing until either one of them or both of them are proved wrong. But if we take another area of human knowledge, that which concerns God and his dealings with us, to insist that something is true and that because it is true, everyone ought to believe it, and that if someone else doesn't believe it, we ought to try to convince them that it is true, that is regarded in our culture, or at least a large part of it, as improper, as the attempt to dominate, as an arrogant intrusion into the privacy of another person's life. Of course, I suppose this is obviously absurd. And yet it is defended typically with the argument that whereas the scientists are dealing with facts, the religious people are dealing with values. And you cannot impose your values on somebody else. But if we look at the origins of the gospel, of the gospel as it was first launched into the life of the world. It was dealing with facts in the original sense of that word, which is the Latin factum, something which has been done. And having been done cannot be undone or altered, which you therefore have to take account of it, whether it fits into your previous philosophy or not. And that this was public truth became quickly manifest when it ran into collision with the public truth of the reigning Roman Empire and its culture. The Roman Empire 
recognized a kind of private truth. There was a category of religious practices which were referred to as cultus privatus, the private cult. Doctrines, practices, disciplines, which were regarded as offering the way to personal salvation. And as we know, there was a great medley of these in the Roman Empire of the time of Christ. And they were perfectly legitimate. One ran into no public disapproval by adherence to them. But there was also what was called the cultus publicus, the public cult, centered in the veneration of the emperor, whose statues were placed in all major Roman colonies and where citizens were required to venerate Caesar as lord, as the one who is finally in control. And as we know, it was the Christians' refusal to pay that veneration which led them into a head-on conflict with the Roman Empire and with that ancient culture. The story which the first Christians told was a story of facts, of things which had happened, which had been done. It was, it was history. And in that culture, that Hellenistic culture, which in this respect was simply an extension of the much broader culture of Asia as a whole, it was taken for granted that the facts of history do not lead to the eternal truths by which one is ultimately saved or lost. History was, by definition, the realm of that which passes away, that which is impermanent, that which is transient, which therefore cannot be the vehicle of ultimate truth. For ultimate truth, one must press beyond history, either in the way of the use of reason, the way of the philosophers, using the powers of human reason to press beyond the particular, the miscellaneous, the apparently incoherent and the transient experiences of our lives to a reality beyond them, beyond time, beyond contingency, the eternal truth of things. Or, and along with that, one could pursue the path of the mystic, exercise our powers of withdrawal of the senses from involvement in the material world and seek by the exercises of meditative and contemplative powers to make contact with that ultimate reality which is finally beyond all the accidents and contingencies of history. But it was this story which the first Christians told, the story of God's acts in the calling of Israel, in the sending of his son, in his ministry, death and resurrection. It was this record of facts which the early Christians offered to that Hellenistic world 
as the truth, the truth which all should believe. And if we sometimes ask ourselves the question, I think we ought to ask it more often, why is it that this single continent which we can look on the map stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific is regarded by us as two continents, Asia and Europe, when it is obviously from a both geographical and historical point of view one. If we ask what made the western part of that continent into a distinct society which we call Europe, the answer is that for more than a thousand years its life, unlike that of the rest of Asia, was shaped by this story. The story embodied in what was called the book, with no title needed because it was for practical purposes the only book, the Bible, to give it its Greek name. Not, of course, in the hands of the individuals because there was no printing, but week by week read and expounded in the church, celebrated in its liturgies and sacraments, gloried in its music and its art and architecture, re-enacted in its drama and in the circle of the annual festivals of the church. This story which shaped the mind of a whole people for more than a thousand years, giving it a conception of the story of which each of us is a part and which therefore makes the possibility of meaning for our story. Or to change the metaphor, a kind of map which gave us a picture of the country through which we are to travel, of where the roads divide and what will be the different destinations which will follow from taking different choices. That story shaped a whole continent. This was brought home to me in a way that I had never seen it before, in a conversation with a Hindu friend of mine who is a brilliant student of the world's religions, and who once said to me, I don't know why you present the Bible as a book of religion. We have plenty books of religion in India, we don't need any more. It is not. It is a unique interpretation of universal history and therefore of the human person as a responsible actor in history. When he said religion, he was thinking of religion as it has been normally understood in most of the world, as something which concerns that which is beyond the world, that which we can sense or imagine or believe beyond the actual events, the contingencies, the accidents, the happenings of this world. And, says Badrinath, the Bible is not that. It is a unique interpretation of universal history and therefore, therefore, a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history, one whose actions have an eternal significance. Now that, he said, is totally unique. There is nothing comparable to that 
in all the sacred literature of the world. And I think he is right. And it was that story which, as I say, shaped Europe into a distinct continent. Of course, the other strand of our history was not obliterated. Ancient classical philosophy still played a part during those first thousand years or so, although a subdued part. It had a powerful reinforcement in the 12th and 13th centuries when the philosophy of Aristotle first impacted the Western European mind in a big way, carried on the powerful vehicle of Islamic faith and theology because Aristotle had provided the philosophical framework for the development of Islamic theology. And when the great Muslim translations of commentaries on Aristotle, of Avicenna and Averroes, were translated into Latin, the impact upon Western Europe was immense and set in motion many of the forces which have led to the creation of what we call the modern world. There was a further reinforcement of that in the Renaissance, which encouraged Europe to look rather to the Greek and classical models than to the biblical. But it came to its climax in the 17th and 18th centuries with two developments which, in a sense, are related to each other. One was the religious wars, when for almost a century Western Europe was soaked in the blood of Christians furiously slaughtering each other in the name of divine revelation. And on the other hand, that in the same century there came to a brilliant fruition developments that had been going on within Western Europe for some centuries and which had used for themselves the Latin word for knowing as distinct from the ordinary Anglo-Saxon or vernacular words. The Latin term for knowing, which is science. Of course, it is only another word for the same thing, but it was a particular kind of knowing which claimed to provide an explanation of the world independent of divine revelation. Its most brilliant product in the 17th century was the cosmology of Isaac Newton, which seemed to offer a model of reality, of absolute clarity, which did not in any way depend upon a history of divine revelation something which could be understood by any human being who would make the necessary effort to use his powers of observation and reason to understand how it worked. A model which ex seemed to explain everything from the falling of, a, of an apple to the movements of the stars. An explanation of the universe as a vast machine in which the various parts, atoms of matter, ceaselessly interacted with each other according to eternal laws of mass, momentum, 
and gravity, laws which could be completely expressed in mathematical algorithms with all the clarity and certainty of mathematics. And in a time of profound religious skepticism, which was shaking Western Europe to its foundations, here there seemed to be a model of reality which could be available for everyone. And it was the French philosopher René Descartes who undertook to develop what he proudly called his method, which would use this kind of reasoning to provide a firm and indubitable foundation for human knowledge that could dispense with these furiously rival concepts of divine revelation which were tearing Europe apart. And it was on that basis that another of the key thinkers of the same century, John Locke, developed a concept of political philosophy which would enable the, 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 the um, sundered fragments of European society to come together again and live in amity on the basis of these fundamental truths which do not depend upon alleged divine revelations but could be accepted as public truth by everyone who was prepared to use the powers of observation and reason for that purpose. Not, of course, that divine revelation was excluded. It was open to every individual freely to respond to what he or she understood as divine revelation, but that was not to form the basis of public truth. That basis had apparently failed, and here was another. The work of Descartes, which claimed to provide an absolutely secure basis of truth and which made use of that wonderful new gift of the Muslim world to Western Europe, mathematics, could, it seemed, provide a kind of knowledge which was indubitable and which was clear and certain as mathematics. As we all know, Descartes, in the confusion of that time, took as his starting point the very fact that Europe is full of doubt. If we are doubting, we are thinking. If we think, we exist. I think, therefore I am. Here was something apparently absolutely indubitable. And on that basis, with the deductive powers of logic and mathematics, Descartes undertook to construct, as it were, a map of reality which would be absolutely certain and free from doubt. And thereafter, every claim to know was to be submitted to testing on that template provided by Descartes' philosophy. And what could not be established as certain on that basis was to be regarded not as knowledge, but as belief. And John Locke would define belief as 
a persuasion which falls short of knowledge. Knowledge is one thing, belief is something else. It was to be this Cartesian test, the so-called critical principle, which was to provide the criterion for acceptance as truth during the ensuing centuries. Doubt was to be the great tool for knowledge. By exercising the principle of doubt, one could test all claims to truth and distinguish between what is true public truth and what is simply belief, personal belief. And it is that critical principle which has been the jewel in the crown of modern scientific thought ever since. But as we know now with hindsight, that project was soon to run into difficulties for the simple reason that the critical principle can very well be applied to the critical principle itself. All rational doubt implies something which at that moment we do not doubt. Because if you are asked to explain why you doubt something, you will have to reply, because I believe something else. But that can also be doubted. And the critical principle eventually destroys itself. But of course, as with all these things, it took time to work out. And such names as those of David Hume and Immanuel Kant are reminders of the process by which these certainties came under increasing question. Until we come to that name which is perhaps most decisive for understanding our present century, Friedrich Nietzsche, who saw with the greatest clarity that the operation of Descartes' method must finally destroy the possibility of being able to use the words true or false, much less the words right or wrong in any factual sense. These claims to know the truth have to be understood as concealed or not very well concealed assertions of power, of the will to power. To claim to know the truth is simply another way of claiming dominance. The will to power is the final reality. And in his famous genealogy of morals, he set out to show that the so-called moral absolutes are in fact nothing of the kind, but other products of a particular history. One of the great spokesmen of the Enlightenment, Lessing, had stated in a memorable sentence, often to be quoted, that accidental happenings of history cannot prove eternal truths of reason. Nietzsche was to stand that on its head and demonstrate that the so-called eternal truths of reason are simply the products of accidental happenings in history. And in our own time, that writer who is certainly in Britain very widely read in school and college textbooks, Michael Foucault, 
was to affirm that the whole structure of what we call absolute moral values is the result of a history of incarceration. Those who had the power have locked up in prison those who had other ideas. And so Nietzsche has taught us not to talk about right or wrong, but to talk about values. This word values is a fascinating word. I have never had an opportunity to study its history, but I know that it was Nietzsche who put it into regular circulation. And now we do not talk about right or wrong because that would imply some kind of factual reality with which he had to come to terms, not at all. We talk about values, which are, of course, matters of our personal choice and therefore matters of the will. It is the will to power which is the finally determinative factor in human history. So this division between two ways of understanding the world that had so clearly opened up in the 17th century, that great ugly ditch of which Lessing spoke, and on one side of which he stood, eternal truths of reason cannot be demonstrated by accidental happenings of history. On the other side of it stood another great thinker of that century, Blaise Pascal, of whom it will maybe remembered that when he was dead there was found so- sewn up in the, jacket of his, uh, in the lining of his jacket a piece of paper with the words, not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But it was Lessing's word rather than Pascal's which was to shape the next three centuries. And if we ask what went wrong, one can, I think, say a number of very important things about the Cartesian, about Descartes' method. I think three things are worth saying. One is that his starting point, I think, therefore I am, may be indubitable. I suppose it is. You cannot doubt it. But it makes no contact with any reality outside of Descartes' head. Like the mathematics, which he espoused as the main tool for knowledge, mathematics, as Einstein often repeated, insofar as it is true, it makes no contact with reality, insofar as it makes contact with reality, it is not true. Secondly, Descartes looked at the human mind as though it were a kind of disembodied eye looking out on the world from a distance and able to observe and evaluate everything that goes on as though it were not itself involved. But that, of course, is an illusion because the human mind is a function of the human brain, which is part of the human body, which is part of this visible material world which we have to investigate. The idea of a sort of spectator's gallery above the world from which one can observe the different elements in the human story is an illusion. We are all on the ground floor 
whether we are Christians or Muslims or Hindus or secularists or whatever, we are all together on the ground floor seeking to understand the world and seeking to bear witness to that truth which has laid hold upon us and knowing that that truth will be contested and will be contested until the last judgment. And thirdly, Descartes' starting point, I think, therefore I am, was in the first person singular, which obscures the fact that all human knowing is a convivial attempt. It is the attempt of a community. It is the attempt of a company of people who share a language and share a culture. Even those words, cogito ergo sum, Descartes may have thought that he was making a fresh start, but he did not invent the Latin language. There is no way in which we come to know anything except as part of a human community which shares in a common enterprise of knowing, which has developed a language, symbols, metaphors, paradigms, stories, myths, models, through which it has learned to seek to make sense of its world. And we learn to know only by a long apprenticeship into that tradition of learning, an apprenticeship which begins when we are small children learning for the first time to speak and goes on through the long processes of education which perhaps last throughout our lives. All knowing is tradition-based, and this is above all true of what we call modern science, which is more profoundly traditional than almost any other branch of knowledge because it requires a longer apprenticeship into its methods and assumptions before anyone can claim to be a scientist competent to alter its traditions. So that in these three ways we can see how the Descartes method was bound to break down. But if I may move to a very humdrum level and put the same point in what I think is a much simpler way, it is to state that the fundamental decision of the 17th century to exclude divine revelation from the sphere of public truth, which is in effect what happened, is to deprive ourselves of one of the essential organs of knowledge with which God has endowed us. The 17th and 18th centuries relied on the human powers of observation and reason to give us all the knowledge we need about what is the case. But there is one thing which observation and reason can never tell us, and that is the intention, the purpose of an agent who has not yet completed his purpose. Until that purpose is complete, it is hidden in the mind of the agent, and we do not know it unless he or she tells us. If I can use a crude illustration, if you are walking along the street and you see builders at work, cement mixers turning piles of bricks and mortar and sand and so forth, you know that a building is going up. 
How do you discover what it is going to be? Is it to be a chapel or a factory or a hotel? There are two ways and only two of finding out. One is to stand around in the street until it is finished and you will then be able to use your powers of observation and reason to conclude that it is a chapel. If, however, you happen to have other things to do and cannot stand around for so long, the second option is to ask the builders, what are you putting up? And you will have to trust the builder. He will have to tell you, revelation, and you will have to believe him, faith. Of course, you may already know that he is a liar. In that case, you will never know what the purpose is until it's finished. But if this whole cosmos has any purpose, if it is not just a meaningless motion of myriads of mindless atoms, if this whole universe has any meaning, there is no way by which we could discover it unless the one whose purpose it is tells us. By excluding that from the area of public truth, by eliminating divine revelation from public truth, let me just remind you again what I'm talking about. If a student writing a university essay in philosophy were to put down divine revelation as the ground for his belief in a certain doctrine, he would, I take it, not be accepted. Divine revelation excluded from public truth. To do that is to deprive ourselves of the possibility of knowing what, if any, is the purpose for which all these things exist. And if we do not know the purpose for which a thing exists, we have no way of using the words good or bad, because it may be good for one purpose and bad for another. If one can use an illustration from Alistair McIntyre, if somebody who had never seen a watch before discovered it and wondered what it was for, is it for decorating the sitting room or is it for throwing at the cat? Um, he would have no way of finding out. Even the most meticulous study of its parts wouldn't tell him what it is for. Somebody who either has designed the watch or who has been told by the designer what it is for would have to tell him. So, where is this leading to? Am I saying that in some way or other divine revelation should be accepted as public truth? And does that mean that it would have to be, um, as it were, enforced, that it would have to be the official doctrine of the state and of the university and, and so forth? Here I think it's very important to make a clear distinction between two senses in which we may use the word pluralism. There is what I would call a committed pluralism and an agnostic pluralism. The two scientists whom I mentioned at the beginning are examples of a committed pluralism. Scientists are free to decide what questions they will ask what lines of research they will pursue. They do not accept dictation from the state or any other authority as to what questions they may ask. In that sense, they are entirely free 
but they use that freedom in the context of a belief that there is truth to be known about which may, one may be right or wrong and that it is important to be right. On the other hand, there is a kind of agnostic pluralism which takes it that, at least in certain realms, there is no such thing as truth. There is only what is meaningful for me or what um, I have found helpful. Uh, that the claim that there is truth which, about which one might be right or wrong is regarded as intolerable. And this is the kind of agnostic pluralism which has become so prevalent in our society. The belief that in fact there is no such thing as truth and that therefore to use the words right or wrong is impermissible. Now, it seems to me that that is ultimately an impossible position. Everything that we know about the whole world of living creatures teaches us that in order to survive, a living creature needs to know the distinction between that in its environment which is deadly and that in its environment which is life-giving. I am not an expert on earthworms, but I have read in a reliable source that even an earthworm can be trained to know in which direction it will find a nasty electric shock and in which direction it will find something nice to eat. I don't know what earthworms eat, but even an earthworm. A society which has permanently abandoned the attempt to know what is true, finally true, is on the way to death in the long run, and in the short run it is ripe to be taken over by those who do have an answer, even if it's the wrong answer. And that, I think, is the place where we are now. But once again, what am I driving at? Am I trying to go back to the old Christendom model in which the powers of were used to enforce the belief of the church? Am I going back to that model? Certainly not. One can never go back. But also one can never stand still. One can never face, one can never refuse to face the, career, the question, which way forward do we go? All of us, I believe, wherever we are coming from, would never wish to go back on the Enlightenment, would never wish to go back on its liberation of our society from that kind of state-enforced religion. We owe to the Enlightenment the gift of religious freedom. But my contention will be that that gift is now shown to be precariously based and that the grounds for religious freedom which the Enlightenment offered are not adequate. I think in order to understand this question, we have to ask it in a longer perspective than we usually employ. 
all human societies known to us from the beginning of history until modern times have taken it for granted that the power of the state requires to be legitimated by something more than human power. That behind the state there stands some kind of more than human authority, however that authority is imagined or pictured. In other words, to put it in another way, that in normal circumstances, the authority of the state does not simply rest on the fact that it has more guns than anybody else. That it is not only necessary to obey the state or the government, whatever it is, because they have more guns, but also that we ought normally to obey the state because it has some kind of proper authority. That, of course, means also that when it improperly acts in defiance of its proper authority, then a situation for rebellion arises. But that in the normal circumstances of a human society, the authority of the state has behind it its legitimation in something more than sheer physical coercive power. Now, of course, the Roman Empire, to which Constantine became heir, was such a society. And when Constantine was baptized, whatever may be have his reasons or his motives, this did not immediately convert the Roman Empire into an 18th century um, rationalist republic. It did not alter the fact that political power was understood to be legitimated by divine authority. But the divine authority was now understood to be represented in the figure of Jesus Christ, the Pantocrator, the ruler of all, who stood with the globe in his hand. And that conception of the relation between the Christian faith and the legitimacy of political authority remained essentially unchallenged until the religious wars of the 17th century. And it was only then when that legitimacy apparently broke down, when the religious wars settled absolutely nothing but only fragmented Europe into a whole number of different states in each of which the same principle was retained. They were either Catholic or Lutheran or Reformed or Anglican or whatever. I omit at this moment the honorable exception of Anabaptists and Mennonites who were a minority but the precursors of things to come. But for the vast majority of Europe, the territorial principle still applied, namely the logical view that if you are under the political authority of a ruler, you are under the religious authority of that which legitimates the power, the political power of the ruler. The first creation of a political society which did not, which had broken from that millennium-long tradition was 
here in these United States of America, where for the first time legitimacy was sought in the will of the people. And yet here also, of course, the relics of divine legitimation were not eliminated. It was the gift of the Creator that all were told, all were um, believed to have equal rights for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But of course, the Creator very rapidly faded from the scene of public political discourse. If it is the gift of the Creator that we have these human rights, then one would have to inquire about the terms on which the gift was given. One would have to come to the whole question of covenant, and one would have to ask about the, whether rights exist in any meaningful sense without their corresponding responsibilities, whether the concept of human rights has not become purely mythical. One would have to ask all these questions. But for the main, the legitimation of government was held to be in the will of the people, something which, of course, for a Muslim would be blasphemy, because the legitimation of the government can only be from God. For the first centuries of this new experiment, which of course was to be followed elsewhere, the vast majority of the people were shaped by something which one might describe as a mixture of Protestant Christianity and um, Enlightenment rationalism. And as long as that was so, the, um, the, the, the system could work. Because the vast majority of people saw their ultimate allegiance to something beyond the state. But insofar as that belief weakened, it became more and more difficult to see how the logic behind this could be sustained. If God is the great reality with which all of us have to deal, then whatever the political constitution, there is a basis for human rights. But if God has disappeared from the scene, on the basis of a purely secular political philosophy, which by definition takes it that nothing exists except the world of nature and the totality of human beings, that there is no supernatural realm which has any meaningful relation to the political order. If that is believed, then there would appear to be no logical grounds upon which an individual or a minority can claim rights against the majority. These would simply disappear. And of course, it is this that our Muslim friends are pointing out so strongly at the present time. We share with Muslims the belief that finally the authority for anything in this earth, whether political government or anything else, cannot be the will of the people. It must be the will of God. It must be God who is the final authority. We cannot simply bracket that out 
when we come to political philosophy. The crucial question, of course, is how is God's authority manifested? And here is where I think one of the great and important divides which we're going to have to face in the next century appears. As we know, at the critical moment in the ministry of the Prophet, when having at last won the people of Medina to his faith, and he was able to ride at their head as a conquering army and to defeat the pagans of Mecca, he then sent out his Arab armies on their camels, east, west, north, in an incredibly short time, within less than a century, to overthrow the two mightiest empires of the time, Persia and Byzantium, and to replace the cross and Christendom with the tokens of Islam all the way from the Atlantic coast up into the heart of Europe and far east into the heart of Asia. An achievement without compare in the military history of the world. On the critical day of the ministry of Jesus, he rode on a donkey into the city to die. And Christians affirm that that death was the victory of God over all the powers of evil. There is, therefore, an inescapable question that is going to face us in the coming years. But, and here it seems to me, is the crucial point which, as an absolute amateur and perhaps a fool, I do not find in the political writings of Christians on this subject. What is unique is that this victory, which has for human eyes the appearance only of a defeat, was manifested as a victory through that event, the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, and his appearance to his disciples given to a small chosen community prepared to be the trustees of it, not as public truth in the same sense that the crucifixion was, which would have meant the last judgment and the end of the world, but as a truth committed to those who would bear witness to it in such a manner that God would win his victory over human souls, not by the sheer coercive power of Almighty God, but by the appeal of the love of one who so loved us that he gave himself for us. And that thereby a space has been created within history, a space for grace, during which the will of God may be known, but the judgment of God is held back in order that there may be time for repentance. And that therefore the role of the state is not as it is seen in Islam, to use coercive power to enforce the will of God as it has been revealed to his prophet. 
that the role of the state, also a God-ordained role, is the more limited one of protecting the boundaries of that space, protecting it in two ways. On the one hand, so as to prevent this God-given freedom, this freedom from God, to spill over into chaos and disaster and destroy the world. And on the other hand, to be denied entry into that central space, so that the state is that order ordained by God which protects that space. It protects the world from total chaos. It protects that space within which the power of the state is not permitted to enter because God has provided that freedom for grace. Now, if that is our understanding, what would be its implications for our own political thinking? It would mean, would it not, that we would seek for such a situation that Christians were sufficiently numerous, sufficiently intelligent, sufficiently hard-working, and sufficiently courageous to shape the opinion of society in such a way that, that those beliefs had a privileged position in the work of the state. Let us remember that in every political society there are privileged beliefs. It is an illusion to imagine that any society is totally neutral. In our society, it is very easy to identify the privileged beliefs, which can be roughly summed up uh, as perhaps a kind of naturalist humanism or a, a naturalist secularism. In other words, the belief that ultimately this world is self-explanatory without reference to divine revelation. These are the beliefs which have the privilege in our society, which control the curriculum for our schools, which determine the boundaries of discourse in our parliaments and assemblies. Every political society has privileged beliefs. Is it not our duty to envision and to work and pray for a society in which Christians, let me repeat, were so numerous, so well clued up, so adventurous, and so confident that they could create a society in which these were the privileged beliefs? If so, they would then be required, not in spite of their Christian beliefs, but because of their Christian beliefs, to give freedom to dissent, freedom to disbelieve, freedom to hold other beliefs, that same freedom which Almighty God gave to us when he manifested his power and his wisdom on a, on a cross. Is that not what we ought to be envisioning. We have been rightly grateful to the Enlightenment for giving us religious freedom. I think we have come to the point now where if that freedom continues to degenerate into what I have called agnostic pluralism, 
in other words, into a place where society as a whole does not believe that there is any such thing as truth, public truth, which is truth for everyone, that therefore everyone ought to believe. If society has ceased to believe in that, then, as I have said, it is ripe to be taken over by societies which do have a belief. And there are such societies. Is it not our responsibility so to engage in the public life of our society, so to proclaim the gospel, so to seek men and women to give their allegiance to Jesus, that we could envisage a society in which it was Christian beliefs which, were, which held the privileged position. We, 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 we have no logical reason to be timid or apologetic about that, surely. But it would be such a society in which there would be a freedom which has a more secure guarantee than that which the Enlightenment offered to us. I think we have to come back to that very fundamental saying of Jesus about truth and freedom. You remember that his hearers were deeply offended when he said to them, if you are my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They protested, we are free. That is the claim of our societies today. We claim that we are free. And we therefore claim that that is the way to discover the truth. Jesus says you are not free, you are slaves. It is only as you abide in my teaching you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. That, I believe, is the only ultimate foundation for any kind of freedom. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.